This is the Education Gadfly Show. Amber, you did an excellent job. So you know, pithy. Exactly. Uh, I tried. Uh, I tried. You know, <laughs> you know many, like, what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, William Johnston. William, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, William is an associate policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hello, hello. So, William, are, are you out there in California at the California branch of the RAND Corporation? That's correct. Calling in from Santa Monica. Well, then we are already jealous uh, that you get to do <laughs> cool education policy work from Santa Monica. I won't tell you what the weather's like today. Uh, yeah, please don't. <laughs> Especially for uh, folks listening from uh, places that have even worse weather than Washington, D.C. So, uh, we'll, we'll just leave it. We'll leave it there. But we're not talking about California today. We're going to actually talk about New York City, in particular community schools in New York City. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. <laughs> All right, so William, you've got a uh, newest study out looking at community schools in New York City, officially called Illustrating the Promise of Community Schools, an assessment of the impact on the New York City Community Schools initiative. Uh, This certainly piqued our interest. It got some press, uh, well-deserved as well. Remind us a little bit about what community schools are, at least in the New York City context, and then tell us what the study found. Sure. Well, community schools is an umbrella term describing schools that provide a variety of services to address comprehensive needs of students, families, and their surrounding communities. Usually this is done through strategic partnerships with community-based organizations and also interaction between uh, government agencies, you know, sometimes departments of health and education. This model's been around for decades, uh, but it's definitely experiencing a a noted growth. Recently, their recent estimate has it around 5,000 community schools in the country, with New York City's version being the largest of its kind. So far. That's great. So a little more specific. I mean, when I've read about this, it seems to be what that maybe there's some kind of pediatrician's office that's that's much more comprehensive than, say, what you just see with a typical school nurse or maybe a dental clinic or maybe what social, else? Social services, potentially. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what does this actually look like? Yeah, so um, you know there are four key pillars that are that are there, um, but each school has a lot of leeway in deciding what particular programs and services are needed for their community. But you know, as you mentioned, you know, health and wellness programming is 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 present in every school. Every school has a licensed mental health clinic in the building. There's extensive extended day learning opportunities on evenings, weekends, and in the summer. There is, a, as I mentioned, the strategic partnerships with community-based organizations. Um, and in New York City, the one thing that happens happens with that is uh, there's actually a community school director position that is sort of at the level of like an assistant principal. And that community school director is actually employed by a lead CBO partner, not by the Department of Ed or the school system. And they are um, sort of a, a leader in the school and coordinating and building a coherent system of programs in, in these schools. Um, and then the fourth thing is a really robust family engagement and empowerment programming in schools. And, you know, a lot of these types of programs are in every school already. Um, but one thing that's unique about the, the community school initiative is the the coordinated comprehensive nature of it with the community school director really being at the center of that just so that schools aren't just drowning in partnerships that are you know juggling their already busy workload and everything like that so it's meant to be it's meant to be a sustainable coordinated coherent system yeah no and and all, all with the notion that kids that are coming from poverty have a whole set of challenges they and their families and so we need to address those challenges if they're going to be able to do what they need to do academically 
And is it fair to say too, though, William, that it, it's not that these are necessarily services that aren't already out there in the community or being paid for by public funds. It's just that they're not necessarily, first of all, located at the school site. So this makes it Correct. convenient and they're not necessarily well coordinated unless you figure out how to make that happen. That's right. Yeah. You know, um, I'm a former teacher myself and I've, you know, I've taught in, in large urban districts where there's often lots of organizations and, and nonprofits who want to partner with schools. And, and, you know, my, you know, my colleagues and I often we grew weary of, of partnerships because they bec- would become a burden. And, and I think that's certainly the case in a city like New York where there's lots of, you know, it's resource rich, even though there, it is, there is a lot of, you know, poverty in the city. And so really f- honing in on the coordination effort and, and making sure that it's sustainable and not just, you know, a, a friend constant like maintenance of partnerships. So tell us about the findings then. I mean, from what I read, it sounds like there were some real positive outcomes here. Yeah, you know, we found the program is helping students in many ways, uh, particularly in elementary and middle schools. We found consistent positive impact on student attendance, which for the attendance, we focused on reductions in chronic absenteeism, which has been a policy priority in New York City since the Bloomberg era. We also found educational attainment as measured by on-time grade progression in younger grades, and then also credit accumulation and graduation rates in high school. And then in elementary and middle schools, we found positive impact on math achievement scores, uh, but no impact on reading achievement scores in the study. Um, and then finally, in elementary schools and middle schools, we found on a couple measures of school climate that there was an improvement, re- um, in particular related to teachers' sense of responsibility for student success. Uh, there was a positive impact there in elementary and middle schools, um, but not in high school. Nothing in the study, I guess, I could look at, at some of the more uh, issues around health and broader well-being of the kids. It's difficult to have really sharp measures of that, just given privacy uh, concerns. And so, one proxy we did have for that was uh, behavioral incidents, um, and you know that we use in the data. And we did find a positive impact on um, disciplinary incidents. By positive, I mean a reduction in disciplinary incidents, of course. And again, that was just in the elementary and middle schools, uh, but not in high schools. Great. And can you just tell us a little bit about the methods? I mean, without getting into too much detail. Oh, David, <laughs> Sorry, come I just, on. I, yeah. <laughs> do we have do we have a couple hours? Um, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the goal of, of the study is to have as close to an apples to apples comparison as possible. And so, you know, these community schools are very, a very unique group of schools in New York City. They're they're among the most, uh, you know, serving the, among the most disadvantaged communities in the city. I um, mean, so it's really important to have if we're going to say that there's a, an impact, we need to say an impact compared to what and so to, to develop that comparison group we, we rely on a couple different methods because we couldn't you know these schools were not randomly selected to be community schools and so given their that they weren't randomly selected we, we relied on a couple methods one being a matching process where we rely on a on you know almost 35 different measures of sort of pre-treatment characteristics of the schools and so that's about their demographics that's about the actual outcome measures we looked at but bef- you know the outcomes before the program started and a few other things. And then we also use um, what's called a difference in difference method, uh, where we actually sort of zero out any remaining differences between those schools, even after the matching process happens. And so it's a kind of a combination of these two, what, what are called quasi-experimental research designs that we that we integrate into the study to get as close to a, an apples to apples comparison as we can. Yeah, no, that's great. So William, the, the last big question though is about cost. Certainly there's been some commentary about this, that, hey, these outcomes are good. And of course we should be making sure that, that 
poor kids and poor families get these services, but this came with a hefty price tag. And so I want you to maybe talk a little bit about that. What did it cost? And I guess I'm a little confused about where the cost came from. I can understand a marginal cost of say hiring those coordinators that you discussed, but if, if the, you know, different social programs are already supposed to be providing these various services, sort of why should it cost more just to do them at the school or to have it better coordinated? So can you talk about that a little bit? I, uh, to a bit, we you know we did not do a formal cost analysis or cost uh, effectiveness analysis in this study. Um, there is some documentation from the I know the city's independent budget office on the cost of the program, and you know it does show that this is you know upwards of, of two hundred million dollars um, annually for the program to to function in these schools. And uh, you know I think the as far as where that that money comes from, it's it's our understanding it's from a, a variety of sources. Some of them state funds, some of them local city funds, and some of them through through private sources as well. And so, I, you know, I think a, a question that, that needs to be explored in further research, both in New York specifically, but also in other cities is, is how to make how to make the financial side of it sustainable and look at, you know, the, the financial benefit in a cost effectiveness uh, analysis of, you know, there is cost associated with these reductions in dropouts, improvements in graduation rates and so on to see, you know, is it worth it in a formalized analysis, which which I can't, I can't speak to at this time. Yeah, as you were talking, I was realizing why you hadn't done a cost analysis right because i mean it just it disappears into all these different agencies right and you could be it just seems like an incredible paper chase just figuring out how if how much more money has been spent right, right. well and, and this is what the, i'm trying to understand too though you know is it a lot more new money or right not. or not right and this is what's always confused me about you know if, if you're tapping i don't know medicaid in order to provide the healthcare services and you're tapping you know i don't know food stamps i mean i know, think the that, reason you're confused mike is because it's complicated. Is, it's that, complicated is that fair because it's because look if there's no if it's only a marginal cost it's only like hey we're going to add these positions to better coordinate this stuff but it doesn't actually cost taxpayers any more money than it otherwise would and it gets much better outcomes because we've brought right. it together it's more user friendly it's all of those things then it's a no brainer it's like yes on the other hand 200 million dollars spread over i i think we're we're talking about what i mean $1000 per kid i mean it's a, it's a sizable amount of money we're talking about so nailing that down hey there's an idea for the next study for you to do william yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, you bring up a really good point about, you know, these are programs that are already happening and are being paid for by money somewhere, somehow. And so is this, is it just a matter of the money is sort of under now a different sort of umbrella that is sort of seen as being public cost when really the cost was there all along? I don't have an answer to that. And I, you know, it would take a formal cost analysis and a huge paper chase to, to really sort that out. And the other piece that I think is, is uh, an added challenge to our study. And, and I think, you know, an important direction to go in further work is really teasing out mechanisms of, of the program and what's what's driving the effect and and that's you know by design it's kind of hard to do in a community school study because the, the initiative by design has all these different programs happening at the same time so you can't really tease out is it just the after school stuff is it just the family engagement is it just the health and wellness and so um and it just adds that comprehensiveness is a, a real you know perhaps the secret sauce of the program but it's also makes it a little challenging to really tease out specific mechanisms all right. Well, well said, and we will leave it there. Again, everybody should check out the study illustrating the promise of community schools and assessment of the impact of the New York City Community Schools Initiative by William Johnston at the Rand Corporation. William, thanks so much for coming on the show. All right. Thank you both very much. Have a nice day. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you, Mike. So here we are, a double dose of research on the podcast today. Loving it. David and I were just speaking with William about the uh, community school study and yeah. David insisted on asking about the methodology. Well, <laughs> darn him. Differences and differences. It's like we're a think tank or something, uh, Mike. Fine, <laughs> like it's what we do. Fine, fine. I know it's important. I'm just, you know, I, you know, sometimes some researchers, you ask a question about methodology and, and it can go on for a while. Oh, I know. Yeah, I, did a great I was job. scared that it's going to be one of those studies that does that today. Okay. Oof. All right. Well, now, William was very good at making the methodology and the study easily understandable. So awesome. that's, that's all good. So now, yeah, let, no let's, pressure. No pressure, now, Amber. Now we'll see how I do. I how know. do you do? Huh? What you got? All right. We got a new study by David Figlio and colleagues that examines the impacts of the statewide Florida tax credit scholarship program. Kind of saw some of this in the news, but not too much. Um, the program started just a little primer on the program. It started in about 2001. For those who are not quite sure what the tax credit scholarship thing is, it provides dollar for dollar tax credits to corporations that donate to nonprofit scholarships funding organizations, and then those organizations use those contributions to offer the scholarships to the low-income kids at private schools. Uh, the program, I mean, it's got this long section on how the program's changed over the years, but I think notably in 2016, it allowed partial scholarships for kids with incomes between 185% to 260% of the federal poverty line. And by 2017, just to give you an idea of the scope, it cost about $640 million and awarded scholarships to about 108,000 students. I don't know what the max amount is today of the scholarship. I looked for that, but I couldn't find it. Anyhow, but just in terms of composition, that's about, the growth is about less than 1% to about roughly 4% of the state student body participating today. They measure outcomes for students in grades three through eight. With Florida birth certificates, they observe about 81% of children in the birth rate data in the school data. The main samples got about 1.2 million students in 2002-3 through 2016-17. Several student by school fixed effects models but they are estimating in a nutshell the interaction between the expansion of the program statewide in a certain year and a measure of competition that captures whether each student's school is expected to face an above median or below medium degree of competitive pressure. Got that so far? Okay, yes. And that pressure is based on the pre-program competitive landscape, which is where the child initially attended school in first grade rather than the actual school they attended in any grade. And in this way, they're basically trying to identify the effects of the program expansion rather than the movement of kids between schools or of the introduction of this new private school, um, the introduction of these new private schools in response to the incentives that are introduced by the program. So they're really trying to capture... Right, the the sort of um, expansion um, of the program isolate that, and so competition. Then it gets complicated. Competition is measured by a composite of five different things, including the number of private schools serving the same grade range of students within a five mile radius of each public school. Also, the diversity of the different types of private schools. Also, the number of private school kids serve within five miles, and so on. It's a complicated competitive measure, and they show you estimates by individual competitive pressure and then the composite. But the composite one is the main one that they're using. And what do I want to tell you before the findings finally? The combined measure is gauging pressure faced by schools in 2000 before the program was announced. So again, we're trying to isolate this and they're trying to make sure that they're not measuring sort of perceived school quality, which can sort of get endogenous if you're measuring after the program was announced. All right, Amber, all right. One quick question, Amber, because you both know how much I care about methodology. Yeah, very little. <laughs> I do, I do. So, you know, in Florida, like other states, you've also got this other thing going on, which is charter schools and charter school expansion. So 
Do they try to deal with that in any way? Not that I can tell. Of course, David Figley may have a much better answer than that. Key finding, as public schools are more exposed to private school choice, their students experience increasing benefit in both reading and math. For example, a 10% increase in the number of students participating in the voucher program is associated with a 0.7% of a standard deviation increase in reading for students in schools with above median density of private competitors compared to improvements for kids facing lower degrees of competitive pressure. Higher levels of private school choice exposure often also associated with lower rates of suspensions and absences. For instance, suspensions declined by 0.9% relative to the baseline of 13.7% being suspended. Then they do all these heterogeneity analyses and they find that the results are not uniform. Basically, these public school students most positively impacted by the increased exposure to the choice program are the lower SES kids, those with lower family incomes, lower maternal education levels. But interestingly, they also observe some small gains for the higher SES kids, the more fluent kids that are unlikely to be targeted by the vouchers themselves. And they say this suggests that this benefit of competitive pressure could be diffuse and could extend to kids that the public schools are not necessarily at risk of losing. And then they do, as these studies always do, this long section on potential mechanisms and robust analyses and so on and so forth. But they are able to rule out that all this could be attributed to the changing composition of students that are remaining in the public school. And they look at a bunch of other things and say, we're ruling this out and this out. And in their view, this competitive pressure is actually the driver that's um, resulting from this increased voucher utilization. And they think that's the channel that's making most sense for them in terms of the gains they're witnessing. Wow. Done. Good job, Amber. That is exciting. Let's start there with trying to explain the mechanisms. All right. So competition, meaning what? That the principal doesn't like losing kids to private schools and therefore make changes, Maybe. which I'm confused about because these are in Florida, huge school districts countywide. And I don't know, have the districts somehow made it so that the principal really cares about losing a handful of kids to a private school? Is there funding involved? I've always had this question of like yeah. this big bureaucracy, like they lose some people, right. which they, by the way, done forever because people move to the suburbs or they move wherever or they leave. You know, what is it within that bureaucracy that sort of matters to the people working within them that gets them to change what they're doing? That mechanism. So <laughs> did they nail that down or help me? I mean, four percent of the state student body participating, I mean, that's not chump change, right? Four percent, I just think statewide is there sort of this angst across the state about the program since it's a statewide program and just I would like Amber, it is chump change. It is chump change, though. Yeah. Maybe it's not chump change. I mean, maybe it's more concentrated for particular schools, right? I mean, maybe it's 10 or 20 percent, but I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of have the same question as Mike. Having said that, this finding has obviously been replicated yeah. at like a dozen times now. So something is going on. And that kind of takes me to my second question, which is, can you talk a little bit more about the components of the competition composite? I kind of want to know, like, are there certain... So the number of private schools serving the same grade range within a five-mile radius, we've seen that five-mile radius indicator in other studies of charter competition, for instance. The diversity of the different types of private schools that are sort of measuring, okay, which... Is it a Catholic school? Is it a Christian school? Is it non-denominational? There's a diversity measure of the different types of schools. And then they've got the number of the slots. 
the number of private school students served within that five mile radius is another one. And then there's two more. I can't remember. There literally were five different measures kind of rolled up into one. Again, they presented the results by each of the five as well. As I recall, the diversity one kept popping up, I think, as a little bit more predictive of the types of private schools in that five mile radius. It makes me, of course, wonder also in Florida, this is a place that has forever been growing like crazy. I think less so recently, but you know, are these schools getting smaller? Is there some uh, sort of resource there, effect? Well, or? are you right? Is class, our class sizes getting smaller? And then, like in Florida, they've had so much reform on so many different fronts. Maybe there is something where they really do school level budgeting in a way that an individual school and principal really sees it. That if they lose those kids, there's an immediate impact, and therefore they're incentivized to try to fight harder for them. Again, I just I don't know. I mean, I can imagine in lots of places in the country. It would take a while for them to get the message to be like, hey, this is actually kind of a problem that we're losing these kids. I feel like if we could understand what is driving this, we would understand a lot. Yeah. Right? right. Like what we mean by competition, we would understand a lot. But unfortunately, it's really hard. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, public schools in Florida know about the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program. They've watched it over the years. The rules change and become a little bit more, you know, generous, I guess I would say, uh, relative to allowing these partial scholarships and other things. So I don't know. I just feel like just the awareness of the program counts a lot, too. Sometimes you talk to folks in places and they've just never heard of this thing. But this is one I feel like at least has some familiarity to it. Yeah. No, I I was thinking of that, too. And I agree. It's just interesting, though, because we say competition, but like we have no idea what we actually mean by right. that. I could describe that five different ways. Yeah. And no, and I just would love to, to be able to nail that down and to understand it. And you're right. It, we see this in study after study. We saw hints of it in our own charter market share study, your charter market share study, David. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it does. We saw seem, it in Ohio. Yeah, in Ohio, school choice does seem to lift all boats when it comes to the competition effect. If it were a regular market, if it was the private sector and there was a profit motive, you know, we, we were someplace where, right. uh, you know, somebody at Procter & Gamble, they get a bonus based on what kind of market share they have for their toothpaste. Yeah. I mean, you can understand all those sorts of things, but I feel like political scientists would look at most large urban systems or just big systems in education and say, well... You wouldn't necessarily expect much of a response, at least immediately, like at the school level, because those schools are insulated from it. But in this study, we're looking over a period of time. That's another thing to keep in mind here. It's not an initial bump, right? It's sort of the evolution of the impact. Well, hey, it's a good thing, right? It is a good thing. That tells us something important. No, it does. And and keep in mind, this was an expansion to kids who were a little less poor. I mean, they were talking more like kind of working class, lower middle class, maybe families. And we're starting to get into some schools, probably public schools responding to competition that are not the highest poverty schools. And look, as somebody sends his kids to suburban, you know, middle class schools, also not what the heck can we do to improve them? Because they seem impervious to some of the other levers. Uh, and so maybe this is still more evidence that competition is the best thing we got, or at least Something. I mean, these are big effects, right? They're modest effects across a huge number of students. All right, but all which right. is, that's what counts. That is what counts. Hey, yeah. Amber, you did an excellent job. So you know. pithy. Exactly. Uh, I tried. You, uh, I tried. You have no idea how many up. like pages that I just have to like keep flipping by to kind of, you know, get it down to even two minutes or three minutes or whatever I take these days. Well, two minutes. Yeah. All right. Good. Yes. Again, effects of scaling up private school choice programs on public school students, NBER, David Figlio, et cetera. Check it out. But that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. 
For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.